Luke chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 1 uh, on page 1025 in the church Bibles or some other page in whichever Bible or device you have. Short pause while the rustling of pages dies down. Luke chapter 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, who, who the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once... When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well, well on in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he was staying so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. 
This is the word of the Lord. Now what I'm going to do now, I'm just going to sign to you, and I want, I want all of you to try and work out what it is I'm saying by signing, okay? Right, here we go. What do you think I said? Anyone know Makaton? I'm Mary Might, so you can't answer Mary. And Eddie guessed the last bit earlier. I'll tell you. Good morning, everybody. Good. Drawing the curtains, morning, everybody. That's Makaton. And, and that's a sign language, or it's not a sign language, a communication assistance system that you use in special schools for the people who maybe got severe learning difficulties or on the autistic spectrum. And uh, I worked in schools like that for a long time. So signing, and this signing points, it gives meaning. So say you just said good morning, the person might not fully understand that, but if you say good morning, that would really reinforce what it's pointing to the meaning of good morning. And of course signs can point us to more than that. Um, so let's look at a quick outline of this story. So Luke, who is the author of this story, is very keen on accuracy in his accounts in Luke and in Acts. And he tells us that this incident happened in the time of King Herod, right? So he's, he's tying it down. He says this is when it happened. And it involves Zechariah and Elizabeth. And they're old and, and, and sadly, they've been unable to have a baby. It's very sad. And so they've been asking for God in prayer for years for this baby, for this child. And Zechariah's a priest, and he teaches and he leads probably in the local church or synagogue, it would have been then, but uh, he, he, he leads there and, and preaches probably uh, in his local village, just in Judea. And he's come to Jerusalem as it's his division's turn to be on duty at the temple. And Luke's account describes probably the biggest moment in Zechariah's life. A once-in-a-lifetime experience as he's chosen to go into the inner court, the place where no one else can go. And that will only happen to a priest once in their life, and some never had that opportunity. So it's a big, big thing. He's chosen by a lot from all the priests to go in and burn incense alone in the inner court of the temple. He's alone there in the inner court, and the people are outside praying. And um, then the angel, Gabriel, appears to him, scares him silly, and tells him, great news, that this, his, wife, his wife, Elizabeth, is going to have this baby in her old age. Unbelievable, fantastic. Their prayers are answered. Zechariah, though, upsets Gabriel uh, by questioning the truth of what he says. So the angel says to him, Zechariah is going to be unable to speak, and in fact he's unable to hear either. If you look later, it tells you, because they had to sign to him when he, when he, on the eighth day of circumcision, if you look later. Until his son is born, he, he can't speak or hear, and then he's named on the eighth day after his birth. So then, you could think of Zechariah's situation. His only means of communication is signing or writing things down. And that's for several months. Then his wife, Elizabeth, also spends time in seclusion, presumably in her house maybe for five months, 
Maybe until the baby shows, I don't know, and then she can share the joy with her neighbours, I don't know. But she was, she was in seclusion as well. So that's a quick outline of this story, but there's much more to discover, much more signs in that story that we can discover in a moment. So let's just pray as we move on and do that together. So Lord, we, we're in this first Sunday of Advent, we've got the Advent candle, the light of the world there. Uh, symbolized in that candle, you coming into the world at Christmas. And Lord, we ask you, you would help us to hear what you want us to hear as we look at the events around the birth of John the Baptist, who will point to Jesus like a signpost. Amen. So we're, we're starting this series now, which is running for a few weeks in Advent. Uh, the light shines in the darkness. And last week, Rosie, if you were here, reminded us there are lots of clues in the Old Testament of the Bible pointing to Jesus. There's lots of signs in the Old Testament pointing to Jesus. And there's also lots of eyewitness evidence in the New Testament pointing to Jesus and about him too. And I hope my signing just now helped you as we looked at the outline story of this first chapter. Because signs help us to understand things. And, and this morning, we're going to look particularly at what signs there are in this passage. And I've got four there for you. And I help, hope they'll help us serve God in our daily lives. So first of all, sign of the Gospels, the good news, sign of John the Baptist, sign of silence and listening, and the sign of all of us. So first of all, sign of the Gospels, good news. Now, in the first five verses, have you got your Bible? I hope you haven't closed it again. Some people, I can see some, or your machine with a Bible on it, whatever you use. Um, in the first five verses here, you can see in this introduction, Luke, this Dr. Luke, he's very, very thorough. And he's orderly. And here he uses the best Greek you've got in the New Testament. It's like, it's such good Greek, it's like the great Greek classical authors sort of Greek. And um, Luke's writing this orderly account for Theophilus, that's a T, Theophilus, of what happened when Jesus came. And he calls Theophilus most excellent Theophilus. And that suggests he might be um, a Roman official in a high rank. Uh, because they would be addressed, Roman officials of that rank would be addressed as most excellent. A bit like if you met the Queen, you'd say your majesty, that kind of thing. And he's, Luke says to Theophilus, other eyewitnesses to Jesus who knew him firsthand have written accounts. And Luke presents his thorough investigation here. And he wants Theophilus, and I'm sure all of us, to be certain and confident in what happened when Jesus, the light of the world, came in to our world. So Luke says he's been in touch with eyewitnesses and they told him what they've seen and heard. And these gospels are assigned to us of what happened. Now, initially, of course, the, the story of what happened was told by the eyewitnesses verbally, orally, uh, by the disciples of Jesus who knew him. And then that story was passed around the communities and in synagogues, wherever. And those good at storytelling would, would tell it to others, or leaders would tell it to others. And if they got anything wrong, once the story got known, the stories got known, people would correct them. they say, hang on, that bit's not right. Like, if I told you the story of Goldilocks or something, and I got something wrong, you'd know, wouldn't you? You'd say, hey, you haven't got that bit right. So it was a bit like that. 
Um, so the people listening would be like checks and balances to the story to keep it accurate. Now, 500 years before this, Plato, another great Greek philosopher, he, he felt there was a great danger in writing things down as he felt human memories were the most accurate means of passing things on due to the inbuilt checks and balances, I suppose, as well, of, of people listening. He, you know, he felt that, that these, the memory was the, the most accurate way of recording things. And we don't tend to think like that now, do we? We tend not to see this value in oral tradition, telling something orally today, but as Plato pointed out, oral tradition is very accurate as it has checks and balances of people who also know the story, correcting the storyteller if they get something wrong. And it is still possible for people, although we don't do it much, to learn things very accurately, like some people know the whole of Quran, for example. And then there's a man called Pastor Andy Davis. Anyone know him? I think he lives in America, probably. Pastor Andy Davis knows 42 books of the Bible off by heart. Yeah, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? So I bet dinner parties are good with him. He could quote you anything. Pastor Andy Davis. But it shows you can still do it, and he can remember it all. So from the first-hand oral accounts, we then get the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tell us eyewitness accounts of what happened with Jesus. And, of course, the Gospel means good news. Good news for all of us. In Luke's Gospel this morning, we see John the Baptist is about to be born as a sign pointing to Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And Jesus is also a sign to us of God's great love in sending him to us to help us. And now, it's a lovely sunny day today, isn't it? It Doesn't that lift your spirits, don't you think? So when you've got a dark, gloomy day, which we often have in winter, dark, gloomy day, when that sun breaks through that, it's a wonderful moment. And I think what Jesus coming, the light of the world, is a bit like what Grom was pointing to Jesus. It's like a, a shaft of sunlight on a dark, gloomy day. Lifts your spirits. And that's what, that's what the gospel does. Now, William Tyndale, who translated the Bible into everyday language for all of us, one of the first people to do it, or the first people to do it, person to do it, did most of it anyway. Back in the 1500s, he did that. He talked about the meaning, what, what's the gospel? And he didn't use, in this instance, he didn't use a kind of technical thing. He said the effect it had on people. And um, he said the Greek word for the gospel is evangelion. And it signifies good, merry, glad, and joyful tidings that make, makes a man's heart or a woman's heart glad and makes him sing dance and leap for joy so at the end of the service i do expect you to be doing all those things and and also when you're singing if you want you can move around not just in the all age song as chris suggested you can sing dance and leap for joy because this is good news so that's william tyndale and you'd think he'd be a bit of a boring guy wouldn't you he translates things but obviously the gospel meant a lot to him Anyway, Luke was a companion of Paul. And so when he wrote this introduction, when he wrote this, this down, he knew the early church leaders and he would have talked to them to get reliable information for this gospel account here. So this is the first sign 
of the Gospels, good news. And we can trust the eyewitness accounts, I believe, and the oral tradition that formed them. So let's move on to number two, the sign of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is a sign to us and the people of his time, and he was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus. And John's coming was predicted over 400 years earlier, probably 460 BC, um, by the prophet Malachi. And uh, he talks of an Elijah-like person who's going to be a sign pointing to Jesus, preparing a way for him. So here, I hope, I'm sorry it's small. I hope you can manage to read it. And the sun's come out, so it's hard to see. Um, but I'll read it to you anyway. Malachi 4.5 says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So that's what was back 400 years earlier. And then when Gabriel comes along, he quotes this, but changes it a little bit. So he's obviously thinking of this prophecy. Gabriel says, he will bring back, that is John, John the Baptist, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he'll go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So I, I think in Gabriel's mind, what he had in his mind was that John the Baptist is this predicted person who will appear before Jesus the Lord comes. He'll be in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, this great prophet recorded in the Old Testament. And when John, John baptizes, um, calling people to turn back to God to repent, um, he, he's calling the people to turn and change. And the idea there, when it says about uh, people, parents, they'll no longer be proud, independent, disobedient people, but devoted, obedient people, a bit like wise and righteous children. They're using children as an example of people who are obedient. So that's what people will be like as they repent and turn to God. So John was a really important sign to point to Jesus and who's going to turn up soon. The light's going to come into the world. That light's going to shine through the gloomy clouds. That's what it's about in Advent, thinking about Jesus coming. But even John the Baptist had doubts about Jesus. We saw the doubts of Zechariah got him in a bit of a problem, didn't they? Well, John the Baptist had his doubts about Jesus when he was put in prison. He was under pressure, like many of us are a lot of the time, and he needed reassurance from Jesus that he really was the promised Lord and Messiah. So John is also a great sign to us pointing to Jesus, but he's also a sign to us of Jesus' followers. Our job is to let God's Spirit lead us and fill us so Jesus becomes a greater focus in our lives. So um, with all those things that can distract us, help to help us to focus on Jesus and he's also I think an encouragement to us that even John who Jesus said was greatest among men even John had his doubts about Jesus on occasion he had his doubts it's natural to have doubts sometimes as we don't know it all no one does except God so that's an encouragement I believe for us even if we sometimes have doubts we're not sure there's issues that crop up in life, we're not sure about the Bible, all sorts of things, then God can still work through us to help others, like he worked through John to help others and point them to Jesus, even though John had his doubts. 
And if you're someone here who's not yet a Christian, then it's natural to have some doubts. That's normal. And you'll always have some doubts at some points in time. But I'd encourage you to follow Jesus and ask Jesus to help you turn to him. So to sum up, the sign of John the Baptist is one that points to Jesus. And we too can be signs in our words and our actions to point our families, our friends, our work colleagues to him too. Even if we have doubts, even if we still have questions, which we will, we can still point others to Jesus. Right, the third one, the sign of silence and listening. So, Zechariah, basically, Gabriel's got the hump with Zechariah, hasn't he? He's not happy because Zechariah didn't believe. He says, I'm standing here with God and you're, you're ignoring me, basically. That's what the kind of thing he's saying. And so he, he went, underwent this extended period of silence and he, because he didn't believe the angel. He couldn't hear or speak. And so he wouldn't have been able to teach as usual outside in his village as he usually did as priest. So maybe this is a sign to us of the importance of silence and listening to God. Silence and listening to God. And Elizabeth too may also have done more listening to God in her five months of seclusion, which I mentioned earlier, uh, at the beginning of her pregnancy. So can we see any results from this silence and listening for Zechariah and for Elizabeth? Well, if we look later in the chapter, I think we can. For Zechariah, once he was able to speak and hear again, it says in verse 64, immediately Zechariah's mouth was opened, his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. Marvellous. And then it says in 67, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So Zechariah is full of praise for God, full of the Spirit and prophesied. That's a great result, isn't it? That's pretty good. Isn't Maybe this time being set apart for a while in silence and listening had its benefits. It bore fruit for Zechariah. And for Elizabeth, once she'd finished her seclusion and Mary, the mother of Jesus, came to visit her as they were relatives, when it says in verse 41, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Another great result. You'll hear more about that next week. So both Zechariah and Elizabeth had faith in God already, but after their time set apart... They were brought closer to God and filled with his spirit. They experienced silence, no talking, listening to God more, and it bore fruit. you begin to feel a bit uncomfortable and you think what's he doing taking so long having a drink was it the silence made you feel uncomfortable because it can do but silence is really important and I believe that we too need to spend more time listening to God rather than telling him what we want for ourselves or others which is important but we need to listen as well we need to listen to God in silence and I know I'm speaking for myself as much as anyone else I do too much talking not enough listening they say that's the old thing don't they 
You see, you've only got one tongue, you've got two ears, so you need to listen more. Um, so I would recommend that course or those meetings after, what's it called? Time to Refresh? I didn't know that that was happening. I prepared this sermon a while ago, and yet somehow God worked it. So that's on in, in January. I reckon that would be good because there will be lots of silence in that. It would be very good, so I'd recommend that to you. So that's the sign of silence and listening in the passage this morning. So let's think of ways we can have more silence and listening in our private prayer as well as when we pray with others. And and if you want to go on that course after Christmas in January, that would be really good. I'm sure that would help. The last one is the sign of us, the sign of all of us, because we are all a sign too. Every person's life is a sign of what's important to them, what their focus is. Now, I'm reading a book by Chris Packham at the moment. This is Chris Packham, in case you don't know him. And you probably know what the focus of his life is, don't you? His focus is, he's a naturalist, he's a wildlife TV presenter. So his focus on life is looking after nature and wildlife, looking after the planet. So our lives are are a sign a sign of what's important to us, what our focus is. And many of you may have been here on Friday at Charlie Redford's funeral. He sadly died a few weeks ago. We had the funeral on Friday. And at his packed funeral, it became very clear that he had a wide range of interests. He knew a wide range of people, but he had a very clear focus, and that focus was Jesus. He was, and Charlie was a great sign to other people of someone who focused on Jesus. Great sign. I was very moved because I met a, a student of mine up there who's called Charlie, and his dad told me, I've known his dad for years, he said, you know, I'd named my son Charlie after Charlie. And I, I, oh, I don't want to start crying, sorry. <laughs> but that really moved me, you know. So he was held in high regard. And Zechariah came from a line of priests and probably had some theological training and taught others about God. But look at his response to the angel Gabriel. It wasn't full of faith and trust. But then you get Mary, who you'll hear about more next week, the mother of Jesus. Her response was full of faith and trust, wasn't it? Gabriel had words with Zechariah. And then he lost his hearing and speech for a while. In contrast, Mary just accepted what Gabriel was saying to her. Although it's going to make life hard for her because she was going to be considered an unmarried mum. So Mary was not a priest. She had no theological training. But she was a wonderful sign to all of us, even today, all these years later, of simple trust in God. So my point is that someone like me who stands up here and spouts forth, you know, a bit of theological training and you think you know everything, someone like me, which Zechariah was in some ways because he was a leader in a church and he he spoke and taught, it doesn't mean that you don't doubt if, if you stand up here. It doesn't mean that you don't sometimes lack faith and trust in God and get it wrong. It doesn't mean that. And all of you, most of you haven't had theological training. You're not a leader in church. It doesn't mean in your daily life you can't be a great sign pointing to Jesus like Mary. She didn't have any of those things. In fact, your trust in God may be greater than the people who stand up here. So I want to encourage all of you who aren't leaders in the church, 
which the vast majority of people this morning, we can all be signs like John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. We're all missionaries in our daily lives, I believe, sent by God. That's what missionary means. Sent by God into our particular situations during the week. And we can do great things for God. So let's have a think about some people who God chose to send to be missionaries in the New Testament. What kind of people were they? So, first of all, if you're here at the first service, you can't answer. Um, who do you think was the first missionary to the Gentiles? Come on, you, you've got... It doesn't matter if you get it wrong. I got a really good answer at the first service, I have to say, that I hadn't thought of. Come on, far away. First missionary to the Gentiles, people who weren't Jews. Paul, thank you. That's what I thought you'd say. However, however, no, it isn't Paul. If you look, uh, there was this man who was naked and chained, and he was, lived in the region of Decapolis, which was a Gentile region, non-Jewish, and Jesus met him. He was in a terrible state. He was shunned by his community, and he was healed by Jesus. And the, the demons went in the herd of pigs, didn't they? And he was sent, and he wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no, no, go back to your own people. His own people were Samaritans. He was the first missionary to the Samaritans. That man, very ordinary man, he'd been in a terrible state. Jesus helped him, first missionary to the Samaritans, uh, to the um, Gentiles. The first missionary to the Samaritans, it's getting easier now. Who do you think the first missionary to the Samaritans was? Shout louder, I'm going deaf. Woman at the well, yeah, yeah. This is getting easier, isn't it? Yeah, very good. Woman at the well that Jesus met, she's there at midday, probably trying to avoid everyone else because she's got a very colourful sexual history and she's probably being shunned by her community as well. The woman went back to tell them all that Jesus had done for her. To her people there, there are Samaritans. There was a lot of friction between Jews, Jews at the time and Samaritans. But Jesus, she, she was chosen by him to be the first missionary to the Samaritans. Gets even easier now. The first missionary to Africa. Come on, you get this. It's so easy. Thank you, someone said. I don't know who it was, but someone said it. Anyway, Ethiopian eunuch, yeah. Now, again, a eunuch, there was a slight shadow over eunuchs, you know. They weren't totally acceptable. They weren't allowed in the in part of the temple uh, in, the, in the Jewish law. So there's a sort of shadow of eunuchs in the culture back then. And yet, this guy became a Christian with the help of Philip, and he went back to Ethiopia, and I'm sure he told what Jesus had done for him. So they're your first missionaries. None of them theological training, but they, they were effectively used by God. So, so can you be, all of you sitting here. So we're ordinary people this morning, but we're all missionaries sent by God into our daily front lines to be a sign to others of the loving and good God that we serve, that God who's the light of the world, who comes through the light through the clouds. And of course, we can be a very simple sign. I'll just share this with you. I think we've started to give these out now. You'll probably get one of these after. That says the light shines in the darkness, like we had on our first slide. And it tells all the things that are going on at Christmas. So you could always share that with people. That's an easy way of being a light in the darkness too. And pointing to Jesus and being a sign for them. 
So let's just pray through those points now, just to finish. Let's just think about those four points. So Lord, we, th- we thank you we have the sign of the Gospels, the good news. Thank you we can trust the eyewitness accounts and the oral tradition that formed them. And we thank you too, Lord, for the sign of John the Baptist. We thank you for John, who's like this signpost, pointing others to, to you, Jesus, the light of the world. And we thank you for the sign of silence and listening. Help us, Lord, to be silent and to listen to you more, Lord. And Lord, thank you that we are a sign, a sign of us. Lord, help us to realize and, and be missionaries as, as you've called us to be, sent out by you into our daily front lines, to be a sign to others of your great love and your great goodness. Amen.